Um, okay, so but so again, starting you know we're here on Kafchadam and Bet the Mishnah. The Gemara says that you do everything in the sukkah for the seven days, um, or you make the sukkah fixed, which is you put all your nice stuff there. It's how you set up the environment of the sukkah, your nice mattresses, and what you do in the sukkah. So just hanging out in the sukkah. Again, not that that's strictly obligated. You're allowed to do it outside of the sukkah, but that this is how you do the mitzvah in its best possible form. And the same eating and drinking. Echoing back the discussion before, you know, about the people that said, Helam was sukkah, let's bring it up to the sukkah, because it's nice, ideal to be doing everything in the sukkah. Minani meal, where is this from? Titana Rabbanan. So this next sprite is going to be pretty similar to the first sprite, except it links it to a verse. Teishru, you shall dwell seven days in the sukkot. So this is the classic sort of phrase we've been doing. Ke'ain taduru, it means dwell in the sukkah like you dwell in your house and from here they said you make your, your sukkah your fixed and your house temporary how does that translate you have nice vessels various types of things um, bring it up to the sukkah you have nice bedding you bring it into the sukkah you just spend time you eat and you drink in the sukkah and adding something we didn't have before umishani the sukkah you do your learning in the sukkah you try to be in the sukkah as much as and you create an environment as similar to that as you would want in your home okay so now the Gemara is going to look at the issue about learning Amy, is that really true that you learn in the sukkah Lama Rava, because Mishanin specifically indicates the type of um, an analytic learning, the Talmudic type of a learning that a person would do. But doesn't Rava say, Mikra umisna bimetalulosa, when, when you're learning um, Mikra, Psukim, Tanakh, or Mishnah, Mishnah, when you're just going over the received sort of traditions, you know, you, you know the, what we would call them the Mishnah, that is in the Sukkah, because that's not, that doesn't require like an enormous amount of a focus, you know, or of, of, of intensive um, sort of, a, you know, intellectual application that's mostly memorization. The Tanuye, but the analytic aspect of it, what we call the Gemara, Barmi Mitalulasa, you do that outside the Sukkah, you go to a better environment to be doing it, maybe outside where the air is better, maybe you go to the base Medrash, that you don't have to do in the Sukkah. So, so how does that fit with what we said? Even when it comes to sort of Gemara, there are two aspects of it. There's one is the memorization of it, and the other is the uh, doing the analytical work. What does that mean? What does it mean to memorize Gemara? I mean, the whole point of Gemara is analysis. But as we know, as after other people have done the analysis, then the Gemara itself becomes a text to be learned. So the Gemara says, Kiha de Rava, like Rava, uh, when he was in the presence of Rav Chizda, Mirati Bigmara Bahadi Hadadi. So, no, it's not, uh, excuse me, it's Rava Virami, because there are two people. If you look at the site, you have the Rava Virami Barchama. So Rava and Rami Barchama, when they were, it's in the plural, in front of Rav Chista, they would, like, Mirati means literally to run through. They'd run through the Gemara with one another, meaning they'd be sitting in front of another Bechavruta, and maybe Rav Chista would tell them over the analysis and discussion, and they would review it amongst themselves, and they'd memorize it. And they, that, they, that would be stage one, memorize what was taught, even in terms of the Gemara that was taught, the analysis that was taught. The Hadar, and then, after they had it down clear, Ma'ayni Bismara, then they would apply their analytic ability and they would start thinking about it. But what did he mean when he said this? And what about that? And what about this? And then they'd start sort of thinking on their own after they had down the, uh, the text and the tradition that they were receiving. So when it comes, when the Gemara is sort of like Mikra and Mishnah, when it's about just memorizing what's being said, not actually analyzing it, that you can do in the Sukkah, even though the conditions might not be ideal. But when you come to do the analysis, that already you're going to do outside of the sukkah where you're going to have better ideal conditions. Now, it doesn't have to exactly be framed as like Talmud Torah trumps sukkah, like they're competing, so when it's going to come at the expense of Talmud Torah, Talmud Torah is going to win out. You know, it could just be understood like everything else we've been doing until now, which is, is that... You know, you don't have to do, your sukkah isn't a prison. You don't have to do everything in a sukkah. So the types of things that you normally would not do in your house, 
you know, you're not required to do in a sukkah. So if in your house it's not always most, you know, uh, conducive <coughs> to doing a certain type of learning and you go to the base medrash, you'd go outdoors, you'd go where it's more quiet or whatever, then the same reality applies in the sukkah. The same way like if you're mitzayar or you have other types of things, you know, you have to be a shom, you have to travel, you have to watch the gardens. There are other, many other reasons that bring you outside of the sukkah. The ability to learn the way you need to learn is also one of them. Okay, but that's, again, all, what's interesting here is we're not just talking about the narrow, very concrete, quantified obligation of sleeping or eating an achilas keva. You know, even there we talked about exemptions in terms about Shomer Ir and Mahochei Drachim, but here we're talking about even the ideal. The ideal is not to be defined in just narrow quantitative terms. The fullest sense of, like, the bare minimum that we could say you were Yoshev in a sukkah is you slept and you ate X amount in a sukkah. But what it really means to be Yoshev in a sukkah is to do everything described here and to do it in the fullest. But even doing it in the fullest, your sukkah doesn't become a prison, right? So even if you're trying to do everything, it doesn't literally mean everything. It means everything that would be a natural part of what it means to live in a place. Okay. Amarava. Now that we're talking about not only what you do, what activities you do, but how you set up the sukkah, we're going to continue with that as well. Amarava says, Rava, mani nishtaya, drinking glasses, bimetalulasa. That, even after you're done drinking, you can leave them in the sukkah. That's a pro, because they don't get, like, dirty and disgusting. Mani michla, but, but the dishes, vessels for eating, bar mimetalulasa. After you finish eating it, he didn't say after, but it seems to be the context, you have to take it out of the sukkah because it's not respectful of the sukkah. And also, the same way, you know, if you're going to hang around at the dinner at the dinner table after the meal's over to be schmoozing and spending time, you want to be clearing the table. You don't want all the chicken bones and all the greasy plates on the table. So if you want to create the right environment, meaning you just say, like, it's not respectful to the mitzvah. But even forgetting talking about the mitzvah, if you want to be spending time in the sukkah and making it an environment that's conducive to be spending time and that's like your home, then you don't want to be taking these disgusting stuff out of the sukkah, so you'll want to be more in the sukkah. Okay, so you take, you clear the dishes off the table, make sure to remove them from the sukkah. Um, if you have like a, a pottery pitcher or a wooden bucket, you know, so after you obviously <laughs> pour the water from them that you need them, again, take it out of the sukkah. Have the sukkah remain a very warm, a very welcoming, pleasant environment. Um, the sharga, but the candle, should be in the sukkah. Maybe, not only are you allowed to, but that, if there's light in the sukkah, you'll stay in the sukkah. So the Gemara says, But some say you keep the candle out of sukkah. The low plea, they don't debate. If it's a big sukkah, you have the candle in it. If it's a small sukkah, this is while the candle is lit. As opposed to the other discussions is when you were done eating with it and done using it. But if the candle is lit, you don't want it in a small sukkah because you're going to be afraid the sukkah is going to burn down and you're not going to want to stay in the sukkah. <laughs> so you have to have it out. But again, it really would be interesting to think what would it mean to be doing this in a serious way. Right? Besides that we've already talked about just the basic obligation of sleeping in the sukkah, which we tend not to do, but trying really to spend your, you know, all, your time, the amount of time you'd spend in your house to spend it in a sukkah. You know, if you wanted to be reading a novel, you go read a novel in a sukkah, you want to you go take out your, your computer, you know, your TV, you know, you go whatever, if it's a little bit too hot, so you bring out an, a, a portable air conditioner into the computer, you know, pe- you know, you run, you run electric lights, I mean, people anyway tend you know, run electric lights just so they could eat there at night. But what would it really mean to go the effort to set up the sukkah so it would be so conducive that, you know, again, assuming that you're not kept to de- dealing with things you can't control, like the mosquitoes or overly humid or rain or whatever, but it would be so conducive, assuming nice weather, that you'd actually just want to be hanging out in the sukkah. You know, so it would be possible to make it a lot more welcoming than we do. And what this is reflecting, it's not just a choice. I'm going to spend time. It's what are you doing to create the environment that helps make that possible? Yes, Charlie. Well, are they going to define large versus small? <coughs> no. Um, I mean, large, presumably large enough that you don't have to worry about the schach catching on fire. And <laughs> you're not concerned about those things. Okay. <coughs> yeah. Right. Yeah. So you know. Right. I mean, look. Yeah. Right. It's a good point. Well. Okay. I mean, I would say things you shouldn't be watching on television indoors. You shouldn't be. Watching, you, know, <laughs> you know. And it's an interesting question. Like, there's a famous Mishnah Brura where he talks about 
spending time in the sukkah but then talking about Shemhar in the sukkah because what do you do if you're hanging around too much so you start gossiping so you know so you shouldn't be talking about Shemhar anywhere but it's worse to be worse to be talking about Shemhar in the sukkah you know so it's interesting because and we're actually going to get to this in a minute you know the whole thing we've been talking about about this theme that the sukkah is like under the Anane Kavod and in the divine presence so that should you make it treat it like more holy or should you treat it more like your home you know, so I would say that, um, you know, well, I would say two things. First of all, being a, more of a halachist than a uh, sort of Kabbalist or, you know, somebody who goes just more concrete halacha, I would say don't let those ideas, con- you know, compromise the sort of more halachic demand here or the ideal nature of the mitzvah. And if the ideal nature of the mitzvah is spend time, so sure, read a newspaper, read your novel. I mean, as long as, again, we're talking about, you know, n- you know, activity that's acceptable, even if it's not mitzvah-related, you know, even if it's not holy activity. I mean, you sleep in the sukkah, you eat in the sukkah, right? Um, you know, I mean, here's an interesting question, not to be scandalous or anything. A woman is exempt from the sukkah, but if a husband and wife choose to both be in the sukkah and sleep in the sukkah, can they have sex in the sukkah, right? How much is it supposed to really be your home? And one of the powers of the idea of the Anane Kavod is, you know, and this is interesting, again, a lot of what I've been sharing, by the way, and I think I said this before, but I need to say it again, is not just my own thought, but this wonderful book was based on his doctoral dissertation by a Rabbi Yaakov Nagain, originally name is Yaakov Ginak, uh, related to the son of Menachem Ginak from the OU, Rabbi Yaakov Nagain, who, who's a Rosh Yeshiva or a Ram in um, Yeshiva Otniel, wrote his PhD on um, some of the major sort of religious themes in Masechet Sukkah and how it intersects with some of the other sort of halachic discussions and one of the major ones was about this issue about Sukkah Anane Kavod and a sense of the divine presence over the Sukkah like we again talked about the model of the Mishkan and of the Shiva Simei Hamiluim you know when Aaron and his children dwelt in the Mishkan and the Kodesh Kadashim but also what he points out is that one of the pow- real powers of that is when you bring together the two m- images the image of Sukkah is your house and the image of Anane Kavod and God's presence. And then sort of the message is bringing the fullest divine presence totally within the home. Like bringing those two realities together. It's not just like you go to the base of Mikdash for God's presence and you go to your home and you know those are sort of separate realities. But what does it mean, you know, to try to merge those two realities? So in a way, you know, I think that you could in a very powerful way say that it's not even compromising the idea of the Sukkah of the Holy Place. The whole idea is to make that same sukkah, which is your home, also the place of the divine presence and the Anane Kavod, and, you know, to sort of bring those two together. But I would definitely say that, yes, you know, look, ideally, what should you be doing to your, to your time? You know, fine, you should be learning your Torah the whole time. But if you're anyway going to be, you're going to be reading the newspaper and reading a novel, go ahead and read it in the sukkah. Make the sukkah your home, and, you know, and that that's actually the point here. Yeah. The, 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 the same halachas of Oel and Tuma apply inside the sukkah. Yeah, I mean, uh, yes, yes. Yeah. Uh, no, you can't say that. That the, a normal roof is certainly chotzitz pifnei the same way the schach is. Yeah, you can. Uh, so that's an interesting creative approach. See if you can sort of make the halachic aspects. You know, reinforce that, but I'm not. I'm not sure you you can get go get that far, but you can try it. All right, so now let's get back to the Gemara. Yaridu Goshamim. So if rain comes down, um, so the Gemara says Tana Mishatisrach Hamikvah. What it means that as soon as it starts getting spoiled, that you can go in. So it says the um, when the porridge is spoiled, so Grisim of I think Grisim is grits. Is that how they translate Grisim? Uh, or was it barley? Is it is it bran barley something? Split beans. What? Split beans. Okay. What? Split beans. Pounded grain. Pounded grain. All right. Fine. Anyway, when that part spoils, which is a very easy to spoil. Now, presumably, this is based on the principle that mitzta'er, somebody that's sort of, you know, discomforted is exempt from the sukkah. But you might remember that the statement mitzta'er patzubina sukkah came from Rava. And this is a Mishnah. So what was Rava's chiddish if the Mishnah is saying that you go in once it starts raining and becomes uncomfortable? And the difference might be that if rain is coming into the sukkah, it's not just that you personally are mitzta'er and therefore you're exempt. It could be it stops being a sukkah, right? The sukkah starts, stops losing its identity as a domicile. If you've got a house with a leaky roof, 
you know, that would be, you know, that's like, uh, you know, that's no longer a domicile. Might even, you, so it might even be considered like a condemned building. So, I know, that was my point. So if we try to explain it, we might want to think about putting it in this category that we've been taught until now called Mitzayer, but that's not the language of the Mishnah, and it might be based more on whether it continues to be considered a sukkah. Okay, Abai Havika Yosef coming to Rav Yosef. Abai was sitting in the presence of Rav Yosef. Bimitalas, Rav Yosef was his ready um, in a sukkah. Noshav Zika, the wind blew. Vakamaisi Tzivusa, and the little um, you know um, pine needles or whatever fell out of the schach. Amalehu Rav Yosef was falling into people's soup and in their face. So Rav Yosef said to the people gathered around. Pinuli mani mehacha. Remove my vessels from here. Meaning, I'm going. I'm, I'm going in. Bring in my, you know, you know, all of my various, uh, you know, my clothes, my vessels, my kalim. We're going into. We're going back into the house. So I'm going to buy. So buy set him. Vatanami shetisra But we said only when the porch spoils. I mean, it's a little annoying, but it's not at that stage. I'm going to lay it back to From as far as I'm concerned, even Danine Date. Since I am so fastidious, since I am so sensitive to these things, it's as bad as the porch spoiling, which is a very important point, which is, it's not just measured by some objective standard that everybody would be bothered by it. It's even true subjectively if it's not tolerable by you. But this already, because we're no longer talking about rain, we're talking at a subjective level you can't tolerate. And we're talking about things like the pine needles falling down. I think that's a very American reality. Pine needles, whatever. The, um, right, it Pine trees don't grow in like uh, the Middle East, do they? Anyway, whatever. The uh, various uh, things from the schach falling down, we're not talking about, it sounds like at least you're going to have Yosef and Abaye, they are interpreting it more in this mitzta'er type of a category. Personal discomfort. And therefore could be more subjective and it wouldn't be limited to things like the rain and so on. Aninut Aninut is like the... Oh, that's a good point. Yeah, I'm not exactly sure about the same etymology. Rashi puts a very famous command that says three people's lives are not real lives because they're like just constantly, you know, sort of... Um, um, sort of uh, troubled and people that are overly compassionate um, so they're always feeling other people's pains people that get overly angry so you know they're always uh, they're always upset and people that are aninedat people that are very you know um, uh, fastidious and like the you know and the, you know and, they, uh, and, and the, 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 the slightest sort of change in the environment you know could have you know is deep you know upsets them and then Raviosi says I have all three of those problems so, <laughs> so anyway all right. I, I have planted pine seedlings in Israel. In Israel. Okay, so I don't know. All right, I don't know if they're native or not. Anyway, fine. But this is translating this a little bit more as mitzvah. I should mention, by the way, you know that um, it's an interesting question. Halacha, like we say, you know. Um, at what point, if the sukkah allows for these things to happen and regularly is given for or is not generally habitable, then to what degree are you not Yosef even when you could live in it? Like, for example, if you make a sukkah that, um, that is constantly, um, you know, uh, 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 get mosquitoes are constantly there. So when the mosquitoes are there, you, you, everybody can leave because it's uh, mitzvah. But even when the mosquitoes aren't there, do you say like, how could you call this place a house if it regularly is, you know, if if, if mosquitoes are regularly invading it? Um, so and you know, or here's another example. Let's say it's just, uh, you know, you, it's a very cold climate. And, you know, you haven't made the sukkah, you know, you, you could put in heaters, you didn't. But if you're so regularly mitzta'er, and then how could you, how could you actually ever be yose in this sukkah if it's not normally made for being fit to be habitable? So I raise this because the question is why we don't sleep in a sukkah. And one of the reasons given is because, you know, the Gemara is talking about in Eretz Yisrael, which is Mediterranean, Mediterranean climate, where it's nice and warm and it's gorgeous on Sukkot. But then when people move to, you know, to, uh, even before Poland, <laughs> but certainly Poland, but Germany and France and so on, you know, it, it's so freezing. You can't sleep in a sukkah. Fine. But if it's never possible to sleep in it, so it's not a domicile that's ever fit for sleeping, then how is it ever even considered a sukkah? And how are you, Yotze, even eating in it? So it 
it does raise these interesting types of questions of can certain realities undermine its identity as sukkah? Like, if it rains, are we just saying that that means that you're personally mitzta'er? Or do we say, no, if it's raining, it stops being a sukkah. And if we say that, then can we talk about a more general, you know, sort of view that if it allows for certain types of realities, even if it provides schach, can you really consider it to be, you know, to be a domicile? We tend to be, not be, you know, not to make problems with that. We tend to say, yeah, even if it's going to be too cold to sleep in, and even if there often mosquitoes are going to get in, but when those aren't problems, we're still going to call it, you know, a, you know call it a sukkah. Um, and translate these issues less about the identity of the sukkah and more only about if I personally can't tolerate it. And that's also what the Gemara did with the case of Rav Yosef. It sort of used the example of reigning in a sukkah to be a more individual focus of am I mitzta'er or not mitzta'er. Yes, Charlie. Excuse me, first of all, in pine tree native to Eretz Israel. Oh, perfect. So we could be talking uh, about pine leaves. And yes. Of them <laughs> uh, second, um, the, when Jews went to Northern Europe in the early Middle Ages, the yes. climate was significantly warmer than it is. Really? And I was wondering, the t- the, the, when did the issue of don't bother sleeping in Lucas in the sukkah start to become discussed. Right. I mean, the Ramah certainly says that our <coughs> is not to sleep in a sukkah. Um, that was about when things got colder. Interesting. Um, I'd have to find out what the earliest mentions um, of that are. I think there's a Mr. Brewer, if I remember correctly, talks about how much snow needs to be in the sukkah before you can... <laughs> uh, could be. Could be. Okay. Right. Tom, yes. Also, uh, in Eretz Israel, this is the transition from the dry season to the rainy season. Right, that's a very good point. And the rain and that's an excellent point and that actually would be a wonderful transition to the next part of the mission, which we'll get to in a second. You know, particularly at the time you start saying Maki Varuchamorita Geshem and as you say, if you're transitioning to the rainy season and you need the rain to see more generally the sort of theological significance of rain, particularly during this time, even if that theological significance is going to be, you know, interpreted negatively, but nevertheless, given those realities, to give it that weight, thank you, that's a very important insight, but obviously it becomes a time that you need rain, and it has all of that deeper meaning. Okay, so Tan Rabbanan, one more statement, very important about some of the halachas about going about when you have to be in a sukkah. This is very relevant. Hayaocha besukah v'yardigushamim. You're eating a sukkah and starts raining. V'yarad, and then you went down. It says went down because the assumption is right. Remember the line before: Halam l'sukkah, bring it up to the sukkah because the sukkah was on the rooftop. So you went down, and then it stops raining. You don't have to go back up and, you know, in the middle of the meal and continue eating. Once you are allowed to leave the sukkah, then you can finish eating the meal. What exactly that's based on? Is it based on an idea of mitzta'er? It would now be a tsar for you to interrupt the meal. Is it based on a type of a teshru kein taduru? That if you, you know, you don't switch houses in the middle of a meal. So since you were were here, you're allowed to remain here. But that's the halacha. What about your captain Mazon? Right. I mean, especially if you're continuing your meal here. You are sleeping under the sukkah. It's v'yardu gesham. I mean, it's again interesting. Takas hasukkah means takas haschach, but we would expect it to say hayyashen bisukkah. Anyway, you're sleeping in a sukkah, and the rain comes down. V'yarad, and you went and you and you went down into your home. And then it stops raining. You don't have to go back into the sukkah in the middle of your sleep. Uh, you know, wake up and go back into the sukkah. Until it, now spelled with an means until it becomes light. We wanted to know what that last word was. Or with an ayin, until you wake up. Oh, or or when it becomes light, that if if it's if it's daybreak, somebody needs to wake you and get you into the sukkah, even if even if you haven't woken up, because maybe now it's considered like a new period, like that exemption lasted during nighttime. It'd be funny why daybreak should make a difference since you're obligated, you know, to sleep there at night. Anyway, Tashma coming here. Um, we have a brayta that says until it's yeor and the morning star comes up. Party? How could you say both? Yeah. First of all, if it means when it becomes light, then either they mean the same thing, or as Rashi said, actually, Yehor is the p- time that would be later than Amad al-Shachar. Amad al-Shachar is like the morning star, a little light. Yehor means like everything has become light. So, obviously, they can't be talking about both about the issue of time. 
or until you wake up and the morning star comes up meaning that you need both if you woke up and it's the middle of the night it's midnight and you happen to wake up you don't have to now transfer to the sukkah on the other hand if it's the morning and you're asleep nobody has to wake you only once you wake up and it's morning and meaning now is really the time to get up and move around then that's then you have to then you you know that's that now you have to mo- get back into the sukkah but again like the su'uda fascinating idea that even though now it's possible you can continue outside is it either an issue of air or is it just more likely of like a teshukain taduru once you're able what, you know if I went over to my friend's house to sleep over you know because there was the some construction going on in my house, right? And then I, you know, the guy called me, you know, as I was, uh, you know, and said, uh, you know, you know, oh, we're just done with the construction, we're moving out. Would I actually wake, go in the middle of the night and get, go back there? You know, most probably not. I do it the next morning. You know, if it stopped, it was raining in one room, and I switched to eat in another room, and somehow they fixed it. I wouldn't move back in the middle of the meal. I finished my meal where I was. So it's probably a similar idea of a type of a teshru kein tadu. It's a real okay. textual clarification. Yeah, the eye for the eye. Yeah. Right. Now we get to the significance of the rain and this important point that was made about the, you know, it's sort of a theological significance. Muslim What is it like? Somebody comes to serve, to pour for the master and spills the, and, and, and the uh, pitcher of water is spilled on his face. So, Ibailu, they ask the question, who's spilling the water on whom? I Meaning it could be that it's like, you know, you're coming to pour for your master and you trip and your pitcher falls, you know, the water spills on your master's face. So that's the idea would be, you're coming to do a mitzvah and somehow, you know, you're making a mess of it and God isn't happy with it. So it sort of signifies that you've made a mess of things. Um, or is the symbolism, either way symbolism is God is not happy. But or is the symbolism, which more fits, of course, the idea of water and water being spilled on someone, that you're coming to do the mitzvah, and you're not necessarily making a mess of the mitzvah. Maybe God is angry at you for other reasons, but God is, you know, is taking the, the bitch of water and, throw it, and throwing the water on your face. And that's what's happening. You're trying to do the mitzvah. He throws the water on your face, says, get out of here. I don't want you. I don't want your mitzvah. So, Tashma coming here to Tanya Shavach Lo Rabo Kiton Panav. It's like the master, just being explicit, you know, takes this water that you're coming to give him or mix it with the wine and he's displeased with you and throws it at your face. I have no interest in your service. So it's a real sense of rejection. It's very powerful. I mean, normally, why would we interpret things in such this powerful theological way, you know? We wouldn't say that if somebody has a hard time finding a lulav, it's like, you know, God is saying, although, you know, we do tend to say it a little bit by shofar, right? We said, like, sometimes if the Baal okay, has a hard time blowing it, it's like the satan is coming and creating problems. So, Right. So I think that we do say it, I think it could be two things. A, I think it could be the point that was made, which was excellent point about how in general rain during this time is, you know, has, you know, is read in very theological ways. But it also <coughs> could be, you know, the examples we just put out there, shofar and feel and so on, those mitzvot that are more done sort of in di- directly as connecting with God you know, you know, type of a tefillah, type of a direct connection, there maybe we're more, you know, inclined to think about them as, you know, in theological ways. Like if I'm eating matzah and something, you know, it's a little stale or whatever happened, we don't necessarily give it. But if I'm coming to like, you know, connect to God, blow shofar, daven, you know, and something is a problem, maybe we interpret it more theologically. And it gets back to the theme of the degree that we see sukkah in the anane kavod type of a way and directly under God's presence. So the idea of coming to the presence of the, of the, of the Master, you're, and you know, you're in the Master's presence, and the Master's pushing you out of His presence, well, look at that. If you're being pushed out of the sukkah, that's being compared to being pushed out of the Master's presence. Get out of my place. Right? So again, the implicit suggestion here that the sukkah is like, you know, God's presence hovering over the sukkah and being read in this heavy theological way is very powerful. Okay, so now the Gemara that is talking about sort of, you know, interpreting certain things in theological ways has a broader discussion not having to do with mitzvot, but having to do with more rarer occurrences than just the issue of rain. Um, and you will understand why it's more likely to have understood these, um, you know, theologically. Tana Rabbanan, a rabbi's taught. Bizman shachamaloka, when the uh, sun is smitten, probably means an eclipse, 
um, a party show or full, or full eclipse. Um, it's a bad sign for the entire world because the sun is something that, you know, is uh, the whole world needs and it has this universal sense. So, Kulo, the entire world. What's it like? A, 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 a human king made a feast for his servants. And he put a lantern in their presence. And when he got angry, he got angry. And he said to his servant, Put them in the, take the lantern from away. Let them dwell in the darkness. The Marshak connects this to the famous Midrash that God created the world it's, and then he created the human being. And it's like he said to the human being, here I laid out a banquet before you, the creation of the world. You know, and thinking about that the, the uh, luminaries and the sun and the moon and the stars and the Psukim and Bresh, you'd say that they should be for signs. So certainly right by the ancients, these things were interpreted, you know, in these very profound, you know, au- like as auguries and these, you know, in the, in the, in, you know, with these sort of profound significance. So there God laid out the feast, created the sun, and then for some reason he says, you know what, sit in the dark. And he takes away the sun. And therefore it's obviously a bad sign for the whole world. Um... Okay, time we talk about the Rebbe Meir Omer. Kozman Shemorot Lokim, whenever the Meorot, now Meorot here does not mean sun. The Meorot means the lesser luminaries, the moon and the stars. So let's say the moon. I don't know what it means. I guess a star maybe would be like a, a comet or something could be what it would mean for a star to be loke. Anyway, when the Meorot are afflicted, Simen Ra Lissoneim Shei Yisrael. It's a bad sign for uh, the Jewish people, said euphemistically. Why? Why not a bad sign for everyone? Because they are accustomed, they know that they often are the ones that are persecuted. They get, they get smitten. Mashal is so fair, It's like a school teacher comes to the schoolhouse, and he's got the strap in his hand. This was when it was obviously, uh, you know, accepted to inflict corporal punishment. Um, by uh, school teachers and by parents on children. So the guy's coming and he's sort of whapping the ruler in his hand. Um, so, Mido Eg, who starts getting worried? Misha Ragil, the, the kid who is always getting, uh, you know, getting whipped every day. He's the one that gets worried. So you, if there's trouble coming to the world, since, you know, generally uh, afflictions often befall the Jewish people, so if there's going to be afflictions, we start getting worried because we know that we're often the ones that, ha- that you know, on two hi- unto whom the afflictions fall. It's a very sort of depressing type of perspective on things. Um, the Maharsha tries to give it a slightly more positive uh, valence. And the Maharsha says, you know, if you're coming to discipline kids, um, if there's one kid that like, it's, you know, it's, it's a lost cause, he's never going to learn regardless, it's not going to do any good, so you don't bother disciplining him. Why should you discipline him? It's not going to do any good. You only discipline the people, the, the kids who are actually going to, you know, go, you know, ha, you know have potential. So that's the way he wants to read it. You know, if you see these things as a type of a discipline where it wakes us up and it makes us do shuva or makes us act better or whatever, so that'll be more effective for B'nai Yisrael. That's the way he wants to read the Gemara. Yes? It's not uncommon to have lunar eclipses on Purim, Hesek, and Sukkot. Really? Yes. That's fascinating. Okay. Because uh, they're always in the 15th Right. Very interesting. Okay, but although this we're not situating within the Chagim, but that's fascinating. Look, the other question is why it's being read this way since, you know, Chazal were very, I mean, you know, they did Kiddush HaKodesh, they were very aware of astronomical realities, you know, and... You would um, think they would have noticed And they, right, they would have noticed the regularity about these types of things, so I, I don't really know the answer to that. Okay, Tana Rabbanana, Rabbi's talk. Bizman Shachama Loke Asimen Ra'la Ovdei Kochavim when it, the, the, the sun is, uh, you know, is smitten, um, then it is a bad sign for the idolaters because, you know, the idolaters are compared more to the sun. It's, you know, it's very, it's always, it's very strong. They tend to have it very good in the, these days. You know, their fortunes don't wax and wane like the moon does. Levanaloke, when the moon is, is, you know, has an eclipse or otherwise is somehow smitten, Simon Rallus or Namesha Israel, that's a bad time for the Jewish people. Namesha Israel, moaning with Levana, because we make our months and our calendars by the moon, and they do it by the sun. Okay, Logan bin Israel, if these things happened when the sun or the moon was in the east, um, then Simon Rallus and Israel, then maybe we'll make it a little bit more local. It's only for those that dwell in the east. The Marav, if it happened when these luminaries were in the West, Simon Rav Yosef Marav, it's only bad for people in the West. The Emzareki, if it happened when they're in the middle of the sky, Simon Rav Yosef it's bad for everyone. Kulo. 
Panav domim ladam. Now, if the face of, again, the moon or the sun is like red, sometimes there's this like reddish tinge around these eclipses. So, cherevali olam. So that's like blood. That means that what's going to happen is that there'll be war. Lisak, if it's like a gray or like a sackcloth, that means a time of famine. Um, why? Rashi says because your a sack is more black and your face is turned black. The Marsha says because sack suggests what's in the sack, which is the wheat. I assumed it was because when there's a famine, it's usually there's not enough rain and you're usually fasting and the idea of wearing sackcloth when you fast. Anyway, Lizu Lizu, um, if, it's, if it's reddish and sack-like, or like the color of a sack, then both things are going to happen. If a luminary it gets the sort of, or the sun, let's say, is when it is going, going in, which means setting, um, so, um, then Puraniyak Shohelavo. That means that if the, uh, the afflictions are going to come, are going to take time coming. They're not going to come right away because this uh, eclipse only occurred towards the end of the day. When the sun is coming out in the beginning of the day, that means that the bad things are going to happen at the beginning of the day, uh, er, quickly, the same way this, uh, this uh, eclipse happened at the beginning, right at the beginning. The imminent. Some say it's the reverse. That if it goes towards the end, then it means like, you know, things happen at the end because it's like, um, how does Rashi say the verse? Um, if it goes when it's setting, then it'll be fast. Um, oh, because um, because there was like no time from from the time that the eclipse occurred to like it occurred at a time when there was no time left. It occurred at a time. It occurred at a time when the sun was about to set, when there was no time left as opposed to occurring at the beginning when there was plenty of time suggests more of an idea of plenty of time alright fine you have no nation that's, uh, that's, play, you know, that, that, that's beset with troublings or afflictions that's afflicted that the, the gods or lowercase g you know the, uh, the deity the, the, the lowercase d deities that sort of are oversee them are not also uh, 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 afflicted with all the gods of Egypt I will do judgment so this is the idea that there are actually some types of like uh, you know uh, angels or lesser forces that control the uh, doings below and they also are afflicted at these times now when the Jewish people do God's will then they, they don't have to worry about all these bad signs none of these signs afflict them right it's like the idea the Gemara says sometimes Ein Mazel Yisrael or the famous Midrash when God says to Avraham you know Avraham says I've looked in the stars and I see that I won't have you know any children and God says God took him outside which means he took him outside of the realm and the influence of the stars lifted him above that influence you know so yes if you are not doing God's will then you're under these types of natural influences and the stars which are seen as sort of connected to these you know lesser deities and you're affl- 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 uh, uh, you know affected by all of those forces but once you connect to God then you sort of transcend the natural world and these natural you know or natural metaphysical as Chazal understood forces and none of this affects you Okay, Shneemar, as the verse says, Kolamar Shem El Derech Hagoyim Atulamdu. This is what God says: Do not learn from the ways of the nations, which means don't follow in their deeds. And if you are separate yourself from the nations and don't follow in the deeds, you'll have nothing to fear from the signs of heaven. Let the nation, other nations worry about them. You won't have to worry about them if you are doing God's will. It's something for the non-Jews to worry about, not for the Jews. Yes, very quickly. Okay, if it's not quick, we'll talk about it later. I'm sure you have a very signi- uh, important insight, but we, we're trying to finish it So, <laughs> you can share it with us after. Okay. For four things, the, the moon is, uh, is, is afflicted, especially if we're talking about it relates to the sins of Israel, but which sins? So, Rashi says he doesn't exactly get why the following sins are matched up with the various things we're going to say, but let's go, and you can try to figure out certain types of connections, but let's go ahead and read it for four things. Um, 
Uh, I'm sorry, so for four things, the, the sun, I'm sorry, I said the moon, we'll get to the moon in a minute. For four things, the sun, which is for the non-Jews, is smit, but now we're going to tr- interpret the meaning not limited to the non-Jews, so let's take a look. The head of, a, of the Beitin, the head of like the judiciary, dies, and he's not properly mourned, so people don't appreciate the importance of a legal system and having a, an, you know, and having a, a working legal system. Like the verse in the Torah, a uh, betrothed maiden that is being raped and nobody came to help her, so the people aren't standing up for justice. The Al Mishkov Zachor on on male homosexuality, the Al Shnei Achim Shanishbach Damam Keechad, and two brothers who were slaughtered at the same time. So again, exactly, uh, you know, the first two were connected to the judicial system. The last two, I don't guess what you know, or, or whatever justice. I don't. The last one, whatever. Well, this I don't is bad exactly. For the yeah, it's bad for the non-Jews too. Look, most, some of these, most of these, you can somehow connect to the sense of a, you know, having a sense of a justice that people, you know. And, but again, why the Gemara connects that to homosexuality, um, you know, I don't know. For four reasons, the luminaries, which means primarily the moon and the stars, which relates to Jews, are, are you know, have these uh, things happen to them. cluster, people that write falsehoods. Raji says it either means like false documents or it means like libel. So maybe we'll translate it as people that write uh, blogs. Or yeah. <laughs> uh, so, uh, and people give false testimony. So again, there's a theme here. Those that raise grazing animals in Israel because it destroys the vegetation. How that's connected to the others, I don't know. People that cut down good trees, and Rashi says, even if they're your trees, because you are destroying the beauty of the world that God has given you. Um, and again, how these various pieces are connected, um, there's, you know, maybe there's all, there's a sense of lying, betrayal, but it's not, it's hard to put them together and to say why specifically these, even if there is some connecting scene. Okay, well, that's what For four reasons, the property of homeowners, but it means of wealthy people, are seized by the government. People that hold on to, uh, to um, uh, promissory notes that have been paid off, because maybe they want to collect twice with it, or maybe they want to use it as leverage in a court case, even if they're not real, that's what the Marsha says, even if they're not u- planning on actually literally stealing people that lend with ribis you know they with interest so basically here are wealthy people but of course wealthy people didn't get wealthy but you know on, on, you know you know out of you know sort of you know uh, out of thin air so some I mean obviously some people do it in a very honest way but sometimes here, is it, here are wealthy people that the, the sins are the you know the desire for massing more and more wealth and the transgressions associated with it now here is again not similar to the first two points if you're a wealthy person then people will more listen to you um, if you know you have a position of authority um, and so if you had the ability to speak up against certain wrong things that were being done and add your voice of protest and you did not then that's also a terrible failing and they make big pledges of donations and then they don't satisfy their pledges so three of the four sort of fit more with a consistent theme, but the first two is like really about like unethical business dealings, or, or and the last two is more about their sort of public role. Um, um, for four reasons, the property of homeowners, again, wealthy people, gets not just seized by the government, but actually like uh, get, you know sinks into the depths, like just somehow gets squandered and lost. Um, like it get, all got lost in the stock market like technically speaking if you lost it means somebody else gained but it feels like the money just disappeared okay and again we're going to I- improper business dealings they hold back the money that's going to their hired uh, hired helpers you know that Oshek is a greater degree right one is delay one is completely not giving them their money denying them their money anytime they have any responsibilities financial or other they find a way to get out of it and to have other people um, you know assume their responsibilities and out of haughtiness 
The Gazos are Ruach Kineg Kulam. And that's wor- bigger than all of them. The Marsha says it doesn't just mean bigger than all of them in a straight way of weighing it, but he actually says that that probably is what caused all the other sins that we've been talking about. Gazos you know, you know. vulgarity or arrogance? Arrogance. Yeah. Arrogance. Um, and he says, you know, that sense, oh, I'm wealthy, I can do whatever I want, you know, that maybe, you know, is what also caught, according to the Marsha reads it, might have underlied a lot of the other problems as well. But when it comes to humble people, it says, The humble, the meek, shall inherit the earth. Look at that. It's a pasuk in Tehillim. And they will, and that's what it is. The meek shall inherit the earth. And they will desire, and they will, they will get oneg, they will get pleasure uh, on the greatness of peace. So they, in the end, if people, you're trying to seize all this stuff for yourself, it's gonna actually, and you transgress and you do unethical things, you'll lose it. But if you act properly, in the end, you will reap your reward. We're still gonna go begin the next parak, but yes. One, um, one or two quick questions. Yes. We're, we're in trouble. There is going to be a total lunar eclipse this Pesach, this Sukkot, next Pesach, and next Sukkot. Really? Yes. Oh, my Very God. Very rare occurrence. Total lunar eclipse four, four, four times in the next Sukkot? Four in Wow. Row. Wow. wow. Okay. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> I think in Tanahid it says that one of the reasons that the rain don't fall is because people are not grateful. Oh, so that's nice. Tying it back to the rain scene, the false testimony. Good. Okay, let's start the next para. Okay? Now, we had two full prokim on sukkah. Now we have one para, the third para, devoted fully to the issue of Lulav and Esrog. And then the fourth and the fifth somewhat, somewhat continue that theme, somewhat move on to others. So, the same way the first para began with all of the... Uh, the um, you know, physical qualities of the sukkah that make it a kosher object and don't start with the mitzvah to sit in the sukkah. And then I hear too, we don't start with the mitzvah to take the lulav and esrog. We start with the physical qualities of the lulav and esrog that make it kosher or an otherwise. So, lulav yavesh pasul. A stolen lulav and a, or a dried up lulav is invalid. Shalashev shal dachas. If it's on a vanashera, a tree that was worshipped, or if it is of a city that was to be con- condemned, the whole city worshipped the Vodazar, and you're going to kill the people of the city, and you're going to burn down the city, Pasul, it's invalid. Niktam rosho, nifsu alav, if the head is cut off, or if the leaves are, are spread. What does spread mean? Rashi says it literally means the leaves are pulled off from the spine and, re- and like reconnected with like a rubber band. Rashi doesn't mm-hmm. say rubber band. Tosul says it means that all the leaves are split. Are split. So they're still connected, but they're all split open, right? You know how a lulav is like a double leaf, right, that's combined. They're all split open. That's pasul invalid. Nifridu alav, if they're somewhat, you know, fanning out from the center, the leaf itself is not split, it's not removed from the spine, but it's fanning out. Like, people have seen that, right? Have you seen sometimes those, like, you know, those, those, those lulav branches that, you know, and, you know, that become, you know, that become, like, very wide fan if you leave them alone? The pine, the, 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 the pine, um, not pine, I keep on saying pine, the palm branches. So that's kasher. Actually, that's kasher. Everything is connected. It's not split. Even if it's fanning out, it's okay. Rabbi Yehuda Omer Yagdenu Milmala. Rabbi says, no, what you should then do is flatten it out to the spine and bind it up so that it looks more combi- you know, whole and looks better. Um, now, if it's ones that grow on the Iron Mountain, they're kosher. We'll see what that means. They have very short leaves. And finally, so that's the one thing that's kosher, well, not the one. Anyway, Lulav has three tzvachim, so you can shake it, it's kosher. Why it says, so you can shake it, the Gemara is going to actually interpret this to mean three tzvachim plus an extra tefach to shake it and make it translated as four tzvachim. But here you have a list of invalidities. Now, the question is, what makes them invalid? So some of them, which is like if it's worshipped, or if it's in a city that's going to be destroyed, has this Avodah connection, that's a principle we'll see that if you're supposed to destroy it and burn it, it's like it already doesn't exist. Or if it's like, you know, or, you know and therefore, you know, it, it doesn't have the right shear, it's completely standing to be destroyed, that disqualifies it. Fine. But how about these other things? Why is a dried up loop, why, why is stolen? We'll talk about that in a minute. But why is a dried up loop invalid? Why was a cut head? What are these invalidities based on? And if you take a look, a very important debate of Rashi Tosfos, Rashi says, um, Yavesh, right? People see it, the third Rashi. Dibaina mitzvah muhuderet. You need a beautiful mitzvah. Dechsiv zanveyu. This is my God and I will glorify him. You make mitzvahs beautiful. Now Tosfos says, 
What are you talking about? Normally, the principle of noi mitzvah, making a beautiful mitzvah, if you don't make the mitzvah beautiful, you still fulfill the obligation. Why would that invalidate? And what Tosu says, and probably Rashi doesn't disagree, is that yet the reason here the aesthetic appearance is, necess- is important for it to be yotze is because the verse says, pre-eats hadar a beautiful, you know, fruit of the tree, or a, tree of a, tree of a, be- a fruit of a beautiful tree. But the word hadar, beautiful, like, and notice the word Rashi uses, be'inan mitzvah mihuderet, right? He's borrowing on the word hadar of the verse. So Rashi probably doesn't disagree with Tosos. Okay, but Rashi says what the word hadar is telling you is that the objects of the lulav and the arba minim have to be beautiful. Zetelim maybe normally isn't a problem, but here it is. They have to be beautiful. And Tosos, so Rashi is using the language, not just the fruit, all of the, par- all of the arba minim. So Rashi is using the language, the more general language of Zekeli Ben Vehu. Tosus prefers to just call it Hadar. There's a problem that of Hadar, that idea of beautiful, which is interpreted to not be limited to the Esrog, and that's what demands these aesthetic things that they look nice. How exactly it's translated, how much does it get to a point where it's considered not Hadar, that was up to the rabbis to decide, but the underlying principle is the idea of Hadar. Let's take a look now at the Gemara. Okay, Kapasik Vitani says Gemara, it says it in this sort of categorical way, un, without making any distinctions. Lo When we say it's invalid, it seems to not be distinguishing between the first day Yantav and the second day Yantav. Now, second day Yantav could mean, if you translate it literally, narrowly, the, the, the Gullus second day Yantav. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it's more generally understood by the Rishonim to be referring to the idea of Cholamoe. Mm-hmm. That not, the, is there different different criteria for first day yantav and second day yantav we tend to assume no second day is patterned after first day so they assume what the Gemara is focusing on rather is the question of cholamoed do we have the same invalidities on cholamoed for the, uh, for the Arba meaning that we have on the first day why should it be different because you'll remember that the first day is the biblical mitzvah the only reason we take it on cholamoed is to remember what they did in the Beis HaMikdash but it's only rabbinic so are we going to apply the same problems on the first day uh, that we, on the Cholamoe that we applied on the first day? So the Gemara says, the Mishnah is not distinguishing. It seems like it's the same issue. So Bishlema, so, uh, so it says, Bishlema Yavesh, I get why if it's dried up, that should not be good on Cholamoe. Hadarbin and Veleka. Again, here's the Gemara, exactly uses the word Hadar. Beautiful, based on the verse. That's what you need, right? And that clearly should be a requirement on all of the days, okay? The idea of Hadar, that should be a requirement even on Cholomoed. Elagazel, but stolen, why is that a problem? Bishlema Yom Tov Rishon, I get the first day, Siv Lachem, you shall take for you. Lachem, you have to own it. El Yom Tov Sheni what's the problem? Because we know you can borrow a Lulav on Cholomoed, so why can't you have a stolen lulav on cholamoed. What is the problem of stolen if we know that we don't insist on ownership during the cholamoed? We only insist that you own it on the first day. Okay? So we will pick up with this, leave this question hanging, and pick up with that tomorrow. We see that earlier piece of the sukkya, which you say there is an implicit acknowledgement. I mean, even the Tanakh is an acknowledgement of, uh, other go- of pantheon of other gods for other people. Is there an implicit recognition that what's really at the heart of Avodah Zarah is disloyalty? It's not. It's less about truth. Is there? I mean, that is the question. You know, um, that's the whole. Hello. Hello? Hi. What's going on?